John 1, 10 to 13 is where we will spend our time this afternoon. To all who did receive him from John 1, 10 to 13. You know, when I was in my early 30s, I, I played on a rec hockey team. It was a nice hockey team in the, in the area, in Saskatoon, actually. And, and I was enjoying the camaraderie and the, and, the, and the thrill of the game week in and week out. It was an enjoyable time. But at one point in one particular season, one of my best buds got into a scrap with some of the other guys on the team in the locker room uh, after the game. And, and so I, I stepped up, I stood in uh, between them, and I, and I uh, defended him. Not physically, but I defended him uh, verbally. The next day, however, I got this phone call from the captain of the team, and, and uh, he, he sounded a little gleeful as he's telling me that I am no longer welcome on the team, that a few of the other guys got together and said that they didn't want me back on the ice, and, and that he was very good with that because he never liked me anyways. And I'm thinking, why? <laughs> you don't like me? Really? I mean, what's not, they're not to like. I mean, my mom likes me. So, I mean, I, apparently he had this long list of reasons why he didn't like me. Somewhere along the line, I had offended him. And, but I'll admit that it, that it crushed my fragile ego, punching me square in the gut of my self-image. Didn't feel good. What made it worse was that my buddy wasn't asked to leave. And not only that, he continued to play for the next couple of years on that same team. He, he didn't stand up for me and he didn't uh, think that it was any big deal. Like, what's the problem, Steve? I don't remember ever feeling so rejected as I did at that moment in my life. It hurt all the way to my core, nearly shredding my self-image to less than zero, actually. Listen, rejection hurts. I, I'd never willingly receive it. Let me ask you, have you ever experienced rejection? Maybe, maybe even right now, do you struggle with fears of not being accepted? It, it, now, if you have, then you need to know that Jesus was too. In fact, he was rejected by the very world who he created. And, and not only that, by his very own family, the Jewish nation. Jesus came into the world that he created, but the world did not receive him. Instead, he was rejection, rejected. Church, rejection hurts, but he willingly received it. Why? This afternoon, we're going to, uh, we'll see why as we unpack verses 10 to 13 of John chapter 1. And the first thing I'd like to point out is that when Jesus arrived here on planet Earth, he wasn't recognized for who he was. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. He was in the world and the world was created through him. Do you know what that means? It means then that Halifax, Dartmouth, Coal Harbor, Eastern Passage, Lake Echo, Porter's Lake, Muscadabit, Lawrencetown, I think I got them all, and all the communities in between and everybody in them, that includes you and me, were made through him. He even created the cradle that he lay in, in uh, at his birth and the cross he was nailed to at his death. Everything was created through Christ. He continues on in verse 10, and yet the world did not recognize him. He was in the world, the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. A writer for the Washington Post conducted an, an experiment to test people's perception. He asked a famous violinist to perform incognito at a train station in the U.S. Capitol. 
uh, it was some cold January morning. He was there. He's playing the violin and thousands of people walked by as he played, but only a few people stopped to actually listen. About 45 minutes later, he only had by that point about $32 in his uh, uh, violin case. That's American dollars. So that's probably like 150 bucks Canadian, but so that's all he had in his violin case. But now two days earlier, this man, Joshua Bell, had used the same $3.5 million Stradivarius for a sold-out concert where people paid $200 a seat just to hear him perform. Same guy. Different reception. The idea of a person not being recognized for his greatness happened to Jesus as well. The world did not recognize him. Why do people who had been expecting the Messiah give Jesus such a cold reception? One reason is, I think, that they were surprised. Just as people today don't expect famous musicians to, to play in, a, in railway stations, the people in Jesus' day didn't expect the Messiah to be born in a stable. They also expected him to be a political king, not some kind of spiritual realm. Then take that with what verse 11 says, where he, he continues on. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Did you catch that? He came to his own, and his own, his very own people did not receive him. I mean, think about that. Really? What? His own people? I mean, this rejection really is worse than imagined. At first, we see that the world rejected him, as we saw in verse 10. The world. I mean, the world means the Gentiles, and, and the not the Jews. The world means all of the different people of, of different religions. And, 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 you know, you might actually expect that. I could get that. But now we read that even his own people didn't receive him. His own blood. You know, I remember times when I'd come home from a trip when my kids were a lot smaller and, and they'd all come run into the door. They don't do this anymore. In fact, I couldn't handle it if they did and jump all over me, but they would come run into the door when they're small and jump all over me and welcome me with hugs and kisses. And they would be so excited. Imagine though, if, if at that time, if I came home and, and the, and the locks on the doors were changed and my kids didn't want to see me. And even worse than that, that they called somebody else dad. I mean, that would be rejection at its highest. Do you feel me? Do you get that? Well, Jesus came to his own family and he was rejected by the very ones who should have accepted him. And in fact, they had another that they called father, not by name, but by their hearts and their actions. I, I got to tell you, that's got to stink. He was the one who created them. And yet he gave up heaven's glory to be born a human being. He reached out to his own people and gave them every reason imaginable to love them. But instead, what did they do? They turned him away and they crucified him. The point John is making about these two groups of people is that they, which you can use the word we, all missed Jesus. Everyone has equally missed Jesus. There's no difference. Here are the people with the true religion, his own, and here are the people with other religions, or for that matter, no religion, the world, and they, or we, all missed him. This is something the Bible says over and over and over and over again, as Paul puts in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. 
the supreme tragedy and the utter irony was, and by the way, still is even today, that the creatures created by Jesus rubbed shoulders with him, and yet they were blind to, to his identity as the true light. They were so blind they couldn't see the light. The world was in darkness and shunned the light instead of being stunned by the light. They rejected him in their, in their stripped-down carols and their wordless tunes and, and their tasteless memes on social media. They, they rejected him with elf on the shelf instead of the baby in the manger. They rejected him in their public schools with Christ-less plays. And they rejected him in their public speeches, pleasing everybody but saying nothing. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Ouch. I mean, that's a million times worse than being rejected by any hockey team. In fact, it's probably a billion times, a billion times worse, actually. But we should be surprised by this rejection, should we? The simple answer is no, I don't think we should. John 3 says this, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. You know, it's pretty clear the light came to his own, but his own were in love with the dark. The, the implication here then is that even though they thought they were children of God, they actually weren't. So contrary to popular opinion, God isn't everyone's father. I used to coach my boys on, a, on, a, on their football team. Uh, in fact, it was uh, over a period of three years that I got to coach both of them. And as the coach for three years, I got to know all of the boys on the team. Pretty, pretty good. In fact, I'd often refer to them as my boys. Those are my boys. They're out there playing hard, my boys. But only Dustin and Bryce had the right to claim sonship. Even though every kid on the team were my boys, I wasn't everyone's father. You know, God created everybody, and in that way, all are his. But still, God isn't everybody's father. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8, If God were your father, you would love me. God isn't everybody's father. And the test of whether he is your father or not is whether or not you love the son. I think that's why it's so important to ask this question. Since everybody isn't a child of God, am I? Are you? Well, do you love the Son? All lovers of Jesus refuse to walk in persistent, conscious disobedience to him. Lovers of Jesus pursue him to, to know him, to recognize his voice in their lives his change in their hearts. Lovers of Jesus cherish and, and treasure him above everything else. You know, when your eyes are open to recognizing Jesus, suddenly the son is, is attractive. He's, he's beautiful. He's, he's glorious. He, he's sufficient. He's, he, he's needed. He's, he's a, a magnificent and a magnified savior. You, you begin to say to him, Jesus, you're enough. You're enough. You, you satisfy me. Recognizing Jesus is like the discovery of a treasure that is, is, is so much more valuable than anything. Is he that to you? And is he being more than that to you? So ask the question again, do you recognize Jesus? Do you love the Son? You know, in the middle of the sad 
condemning statement of verse 11 here, which might lead us to think if we stop there, to think that all hope is lost, there's a glimmer of hope offered. Not everyone rejected the light. Some went against the trend of rejection. Some did receive him. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. Church, what a beautiful statement this is. The world's hatred of God and rejection of Christ cannot overrule or impede or stop God's plan. As we see in verse 12, some will receive him. So what does receive mean then? When I receive a guest in my home, I expect that they'll eventually leave, or at least I hope they will. They don't come into the house with an expectation of ownership, certainly. They're a guest. So to receive Jesus then can't mean that. When I received Debbie as my wife and she received me as her husband, it meant so much more than receiving a guest, as I had explained. First of all, I don't ever want her to leave and she doesn't want me to leave most days. We want it, we want it to be permanent. But also receiving her means that she takes on, we both take on ownership. You know, since June 10th, 1989, my life has been a constant shuffling of furniture, painting of walls, redoing of kitchens and gardens and decks. It's a steady world of redo, updo, touch up and build up, of tear down and tear out. Because Debbie has taken ownership. (laughs) And she owns well. You know, there are different ways of understanding receive. Receiving Jesus is like, but even more so, the second way of receiving. Receiving Jesus means that when he comes to you as Savior, you receive his salvation. When he comes to you as a leader, you receive his leadership. When he comes to you as counselor, you receive what? His counsel. When he comes to you as king, you receive his rule. I remember my dad saying at times in our home, my house, my rules, receiving Jesus means his house, his rules. It means taking him into your life for what and who he is. It for sure doesn't mean that that it's some kind of peaceful coexistence as though he can stay in the house as long as he doesn't play his music too loud. Receiving Jesus means letting him write a new song in your heart and playing it as loud as he wants. Receiving Jesus means taking him in and entering a steady world of redo and updo, touch up and build up, of tear down and tear out. Receiving Jesus means taking him into your life. That means your home, your school, your work, your marriage, your dreams. Your, you add on what else you need to add on to for who he really is. It means that you receive his ownership and that means to expect him to begin renovating and changing and renewing you in ways that you've never even imagined. So to And so receive him. Receive Jesus. But John also uses the word believe. So we've seen what receive means. Now what does believe mean? Look at John 5. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes only from God? Verse 44 implies that you can't believe in Jesus if you think you're all of that. If, if you love having others boast about how great you are, or, or if you love to brag about yourself, let me tell you about my great deeds. If you think that everything centers around you, then you can't truly believe in the one who is actually the center of everything. There can only be one center, after all. So believing isn't then just an intellectual exercise that tr- to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. 
It requires the body and the, and the soul and, and the mind to submit and humble oneself to God's greatness and his majesty. Then, continue on, you look at John 6, where he says, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. This verse is saying that believing in Jesus means I'm satisfied in him. It means that Jesus is the food that feeds the hunger of your soul. Not, not Netflix or, or the best foods or the deeper relationships or even world travel or getting married or getting that dream job or even your hockey team winning the Stanley Cup. Yes. In other words, church, believing is a deep work in our heart. It's not a simple nod to our statement of faith. And it includes breaking free from the craving for, for human praise. And it includes being satisfied with Jesus as the bread of life above all those other things that we enjoy. And then notice what amazing event happens as a result of receiving and then believing. What does he say? He gave them the right to be children of God. That's a big deal. That's a huge deal. I mean, this is fascinating. This means then that the end of the story is not a Greek tragedy with a heartbreaking rejection. Instead, it's one of grace and it's one of acceptance. To those who believe, to those who see Jesus as the one to receive all praise, who see Jesus as their sufficient everything, he gave the right to become children of the king. Do you get that? Do you see that? I mean, it's not even the chance to be children or, or the hope to become a child of God. Rather, it's the right to be children. In other words, we're given a divine authorization to be given to us to become what no human effort could ever hope to accomplish, becoming God's children. And when you consider that God is not everyone's father, but that you and I are or have been invited to be and given the right to be, I mean, that realization, church, should astound us. So the question begs to be asked then, just how do we get this right? Because it's not something we can make happen. But thankfully, John describes how. You know what he says? We must be born of God. Verse 13, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Now, there's three negatives here first to make sure we fully understand what it means to be born of God. John wants to make sure that we know what this means. First of all, he says we're not born of natural descent. In other words, this right doesn't come by any kind of blood lineage. Being a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't uh, provide the authority to be a child of God. There's no hope or rights gained by tracing out your family history. Just because your parents or your grandparents were Christians doesn't mean that you are. The Jews thought that by tracing their lineage to Abraham that they were children of God. However, John is quite clear to let us know that that's not the case. He also says we're not born of the will of the flesh. In other words, none of our human efforts can give us the right to be a child of God. None. Not even the best and the kindest and the most humanitarian good deeds can bring us the right to be a child of God. The Jews believed that their works brought them into a relationship with God. Things like circumcision and, 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 and keeping various ceremonial laws and not eating clean and, and, unavo and avoiding unclean foods. And they felt that this placed them in, in a covenant relationship with God. 
Trying to be the best version of a Christian that you can be should, uh, doesn't do it either, by the way. There is no act that we can take that authorizes us to become children of God. You know why? Because we're dead in our sins. We are lost in the darkness. Thirdly, he points out that we're born not of the will of man. It doesn't matter how much you want to be in a relationship with Jesus. You could want to be a child all you want, but you have a problem. Here's the problem. We've got a sin problem, church. And, and, and desire doesn't overcome our sins. It doesn't overcome the problem. You can be as good as you want to be. Try as hard as you can. You want to be with God with every fiber of your being, but your condition before God does not change. The problem of sin remains the same. So where do we find the solution to our sin problem? Well, thankfully, John tells us it's in these words. We are born of God. There's a rejoicing at the end of the story here. There's good news. It's called the gospel. We are born of God. You see, the human race did not seek out a family relationship with God. The reaching out was God's and his alone. We are born of God by a free act of sovereign grace. He chooses us before we ever choose him. God has done through Jesus what no one else could ever do. We needed help, and this is why the light was sent into the world. Only the blood of Jesus is able to move us from the status of dead in our sins to living children of God. Listen, Jesus is the true light, and it's by his will and his life that it's possible for us to become children of God. But we must believe that he is a son of God and receive him, which means that we surrender our lives to follow him. I mean, this is a great salvation for sinners like you and me. It's full and it's free and, 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 and complete and it, and it corresponds to our exact need and, and condition. This is what those who are being baptized, by the way, this afternoon, later on in the service, have experienced. And this is why they are being baptized, to showcase that. They've died to self. They have been buried with Christ. And now they're rising to new life in Christ Jesus has made them free and has caused them to be reborn as disciples of Jesus Christ. And I offer to you this afternoon as well, receive him as he really is. Believe in him as the all-satisfying end of your search for peace. The moment you believe in Jesus, the moment you receive him for who he is, in that moment, he not only gives you new birth, but the right and authority to claim your claim to your inheritance as a child of God. So let me ask this question. What in the world is the ultimate difference this all makes to you and me? Really, why? What difference does it make? Why does it matter today? Why does it matter next Friday? Why does it matter tomorrow morning when we all get up out of bed and we head off to work or we head off to do our assignments or we get up to grab our first cup of coffee? What is the difference that this makes? Well, the difference it makes to you and me is this. Jesus said in John 8, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. Great verse to memorize, by the way. In other words, if we're not children, we then must be slaves. There's really no other option. There's, it's one or the other. If the slave, doesn't stay, the slave doesn't stay in the house forever, but here's the beauty, the children do. What's at stake then in becoming a child of God is an internal inheritance. That's a big deal. 
When you become a child of God, you become an heir of all that God owns. And, and by the way, we don't just receive any old kind of, of inheritance. Ours is far better than any worldly inheritance inheritance in both its its scope and, and its span. I mean, the scope of our inheritance is the very kingdom of God. We have all the perks of being one of his own. In other words, we're not strangers now. We're family. God doesn't save us and then kick us out. He, he saves us and then he adopts us. In the gospel, the father judge declares us not guilty. And then he turns around and he looks at us and he says, I want you to come and live with me. Welcome home. We're at home with God. Do you get that? And as Jesus' people, he gives us all that is his. The universe belongs to Jesus. Think about this. And now it belongs to you and me. Jupiter belongs to you because of Jesus. The Hubble telescope is itemizing your inheritance in space. All things are yours as a child of the king. Do you get that? So it's okay if you don't have the best house in the world today. Jesus has something better for you in the city whose architect and community developer and real estate mogul is God himself. But there's even more. This, there's more. We've been set free from this hideous rule of sin and Satan. Christ himself sets us free. Not our works, not our church, not, not ourselves, only Jesus. Yes, amen to that. Isn't Jesus good? Instead of being in slavery, I mean, legalism is slavery. Trying to be saved by works and doing good is nothing but rusty chains. Jesus shattered those shackles, and now we can follow him and we can walk with him. We live freely under the reign of grace, the, the rule of Christ. Think about this, pornography, wheat beer, dark chocolate, clearance sales, and social media follow, followers no longer control us. Hallelujah. Jesus set us free from living for and finding fulfillment in things that moth and rust and, and trends and death are going to destroy. And finally, because the eternal one was rejected, we who receive him are eternally accepted. No more rejection. Isn't that good? I mean, what an awesome truth. Not those who have worked the hardest or have done the best. No, it's the people who received him. When I give my kids a gift, they don't say, oh, I really worked really hard for that, Dad. No, they don't say that. No, they say, no, I'll take that. You're giving it freely. I'm going to take that. And I enjoy giving it to them. That's the picture. God gives us this gift freely. Belief in Jesus, trust in what he's done for our salvation. And in this, we have been given the right to be children of God. Imagine. We're talking about the creator of the universe who says, I will be your dad. Imagine having that kind of relationship with the holy God of the universe who I've sinned against, who, who, who I rebelled against, who I turned against, who I've defied. And yet he's made a way through Jesus for me to receive his, his grace through faith, through belief in his name. And in this, I've been welcomed into his family where I know him as my dad. God is my dad. <laughs> you know, you have that privilege too. We're brothers and sisters, after all. We're sons and daughters of the king. And we're a family before God who knows, who, uh, of all of us who know God as our dad, as our father. You know, I know some here, as we reflect, just want to spend a couple of moments in reflection here. 
I know some here don't have a strong relationship with a dad on earth. Some of you might not even, even have a dad and or even had a, ever a relationship with a dad on earth. And so this is a bit skewed in a sense, but just picture the perfect father, the perfect dad who's always right, who's always protecting you, who's always providing for you, whose love will never, ever, ever let you go. Whose love for you is perfect and will never let you down whose wisdom is perfect, who has all the power in the world, who will never reject you, even though at one time you rejected him. He's your dad. He's your father. And this is absolute glorious news. So live in it. Be, be counted as one of those who, who did receive him. And then worship him as your father. Pray to him as your father. Walk with love and enjoy God as your father. And if you haven't yet, believe on him and receive him as your father as your dad. And if that if that's you, even this afternoon, I, I want you to share that news with and or conversation with either Bryce or myself. We'd love to take you into some next steps to know and recognize in amazing ways to know truly deeply the one that you have now received.